Welcome to the Western Bowl podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Maintaining Presence in the Midst of Chaos. The talk was given by Bandu Dunham on September 5th, 2020, in Prescott, Arizona. Bandu is author of Creative Life and an internationally recognized glass artist and teacher. Bandu Dunham. I had some alternate titles for this talk. One was uh, Finding Your Center in a Lopsided World or Standing Up to the Crazy Voices Inside and Outside Your Head or Navigating Information Overload in an Information Vacuum or No Guarantee of Success, Realism in the Face of Uncertainty. So all of those kind of apply in different ways to what we're going to talk about tonight. But as it is, the main themes are going to be the nature of the mind and seeking order within chaos. The talk it really is, in, in case it wasn't clear, the talk is more about asking the right questions than it is about providing definitive answers, because these things, it's an ongoing process. It's a constant self-correcting process, trying to find your center. It's not like you do it once and then you're done. Yeah, it's not a single final act. I'll talk for a while, then we'll see if there's comments or questions. Okay, so we're going to talk about the nature of the mind. Uh, The mind is basically a binary analytical machine. It's a survival tool that is meant to be part of a system, which is us. And it's one of the tools we have at our disposal. One of the problems we have in modern in modern life is that it tends to be the dominant tool, the one we go to a lot. And our, our society is kind of organized around going to that as the only tool. So it's a survival tool, and it always divides. Red Hawk talks in, in his book, um, Self-Observation, he talks a lot about the nature of the mind as a binary machine, that it's always dividing, and we just need to be prepared to deal with the mind that's always dividing. So the mind always works in binaries um, and it's always dividing things into two. Yes and no, good and bad, safe and dangerous, attractive and repellent. And it's just how the mind operates. It's it's uh, trying to be helpful. That's what the mind does. That's its job. You know, an example of the mind just doing its job, whether we want it to or not, is uh, worry. You know, in this, uh, in the current world, we've got a lot of worry to deal with. And worry is really just the mind trying to be helpful in a situation where it has nothing to contribute. You know, if, there, if you're in a situation, you deal with the situation. Worrying about the situation is an overlay we put on top of it that um, just adds some complication. So the nature of the mind is to divide. Higher reality is unitive, and maybe we can try to define what that is later. But the mind is meant to function as an analytical tool within that context of this system that we are. But it's left to, when it's left to its own devices, 
the mind goes crazy, kind of like a child with no boundaries. So um, the mind is typically unable to shut up, but it can be forced to through shock or trained through effort. Um, and if you studied Gurdjieff work, you know, they talk a lot about the application of shocks um, in a way that makes the mind stop so that other things can, can happen. But it's also something that we can train ourselves to um, sort of subdue the mind or at least make it a more manageable ally in our life. Um, so anyway, a result of the nature of the mind being, um, you know, binary, uh, the result is that our understanding of the world is based on con- compare and contrast all the time. Um, you know, attraction, repulsion, yes or no, left twix, right trick, twix, uh, Count Chocula versus Frankenberry. You know, these they base ad campaigns on these fake dramas that have been created because they know that we respond naturally to drama and conflict. We resonate with it. Our mind goes right there. So those are used a lot in advertising and other forms of manipulation. You know, the the ancient Greeks knew that drama and storytelling and theater could be used as tools to promote uh, social cohesion and health of society. In our society, we seem to use these tools largely to divide people, at least in the context we're talking about tonight. You know, there's a lot of division happening. In the business world, people are divided into sub-markets, you know, smaller and smaller silos of people who are being addressed, you know, very personalized advertising on the Internet. So they zoom right in on you. And the, uh, the technology of marketing nowadays is based on more and more refined divisions and specifying where that targeted ad is going. And, you know, repeated and more refined divisions over time, they break us into smaller and smaller units. Um, you know, things get sort of atomized into smaller parts. And, you know, when you break something down into its atoms, there's a name for that. It's called disintegration. So you might argue that one of the forces acting on society right now is actually designed to disintegrate us, the way that our whole marketing and that domain of life is operating. So that's a sort of sobering thought. Uh, also, the, well, the binary nature of the mind leads to good and bad results. And there it is again, right? We've got good and bad. But things like boundaries are very appropriate. You know, you need to have certain kinds of boundaries, psychological boundaries and physical boundaries. Certain kinds of divisions are appropriate. There are times when things should be divided in order to understand things better. Polarization being maybe at the far end of the spectrum, things that are less desirable, but that are just kind of inherent in the nature of the mind. We tend to divide things into us and them. It's me and my people and those people over there. Maybe those people over there are allies. Maybe they're not. If we don't know, we might regard them as enemies just to be safe, right? So that's just inherent in the nature of the mind, and it's something we have to live with and learn to work with. So one remedy for that aspect or that quality of the mind is compassion. The literal meaning of compassion is feeling with, right? Or it could be referred to as being one with, expression that um, the French teacher Arnaud Desjardins used, or many other people use that too. But we can consciously cultivate compassion and empathy. And empathy is the neighbor of compassion, maybe. 
Empathy is something that can be cultivated intentionally, even though we think of it as a quality that people either have or they don't have. So I wanted to just mention nonviolent communication, also known as NVC. You can take an approach to cultivating empathy. Um, I don't know if people have heard of NVC, nonviolent communication, but it's a system that was developed by this fellow, Marshall Rosenberg, and he's taken it all around the world and worked with groups of people who are like very much at odds with each other, just taking them through a process that enables them to find some common ground and communicate with each other, even people who are like sworn deadly enemies. He's done it, I think, like in the Middle East and maybe even in Afghanistan and stuff. So the idea, so if you're in a situation where you're trying to figure out how to communicate with someone and you guys are just at odds, you might check this stuff out and look at it and go, oh, maybe what I need to do is identify the feelings that the feeling that the situation brings up instead of just reacting. If you can kind of go through steps. Another technique that um, is useful, you may have heard of, is called Rogerian listening, named after, uh, what was his name, Carl Rogers? psychologist. Uh, And the idea of Rogerian listening is when you're in a conversation with someone, they say something, you kind of hold yourself back instead of just reacting right away. You stop and you repeat what the person said. So you say, I understood you to say X, Y, Z. And then you you pause and you make sure that you're on the same page. And then you can proceed, proceed to the next step of the communication. But it If you try that out, you'll see it's really interesting how often we don't bother doing that. You know, we just react to something that someone says. So that process of Rogerian listening, just repeating what the person said first, and then uh, making sure that you're on the same page and then going forward really eliminates a uh, a lot of hassles that can happen. Okay, so that's a little bit about the nature of the mind. Obviously, we could talk about the nature of the mind for weeks on end and never run out. Um, But I think that's enough for us to work with right now. I wanna talk now about seeking order within chaos, which is kind of the main theme, right? So how chaos happens? Well, you know, to some degree, chaos is just a natural process. I mean, you have to expect chaos to happen. Entropy is one of the laws of thermodynamics. Entropy is a natural process. You know, the universe just kind of winds down. Things without without energy being added into a system, things tend to just wind down and fall apart. Mortality being an example of that. You know, we all face mortality every day. It's really part of the package. You know, we might try to deny it or something, but really mortality is part of our package. And if we can accept this, we do a lot better. If you can't accept it, you know, mortality and the role of entropy in the universe, it might actually be some kind of pathology on our part. I think sometimes we seek power over chaos out of fear or denial because we're trying to um, compensate or deny or hide from the fact that mortality is real. But if we can just begin to accept our mortality, that opens up some other possibilities. That's one uh, interpretation of what Carlos Castaneda talked about, of um, using death as an advisor. Using death as an advisor. Uh, his idea was that your death is, a, is an entity that's always kind of, death is always over to your left side at arm's length. And you can actually, if you're under stress, 
you're in some crazy circumstance and you think maybe you're going to die, you know, you can turn to your death and say, am I going to die? Am I dying? And your death will answer you and say, no, not yet. Not yet. I haven't touched you yet. Something to consider. Uh, the other thing is that sometimes things only seem to us like chaos. We think the world is in chaos when actually things might be moving along according to some natural order that we just don't understand. Um, and one, yeah, things only seem like chaos to our limited mind sometimes. And if our concept of order doesn't match with nature's possibly higher concept of what order is, uh, we might tend to question, uh, we often tend to question nature rather than to question our concept of what order is. It's funny how that works. You know, I always think that my ideas are the best ideas. My interpretation of reality is obviously the correct one. If it wasn't the best idea, I wouldn't have thought of it, you know? So the other thing is that sometimes we create chaos, um, either through error or accident. Uh, and again, the mind keeps dividing and going, and it will keep dividing and go crazy just dividing things if it's left to its own devices unchecked. It's just the nature of the mind. When things are good, you know, we're not under stress, we can kind of go along smoothly. When um, we're under stress, that division process, that separation process can kind of go crazy. And again, the mind is meant to be part of a system. So it's one of the tools we have at our disposal. But if we lean on it too much, you know, Gurdjieff, um, Gurdjieff, if you're familiar with Gurdjieff, uh, if you're not familiar with the Gurdjieff, he was a, a spiritual teacher, first half of the 20th century of Armenian extraction, I think. He was born in Armenia, taught a lot in Russia and then in Europe. Um, but he had this analogy, which was that our be we are like, um, the system that we are is kind of like a horse and a cart. So the... Um, Horse, the horse represents our vital energy. The uh, cart is um, what our body, something like that. The driver is the mind, and our being is the passenger. And these things are all supposed to work together. The being, the passenger, is supposed to direct the mind to control the horses to go in the direction you want. And if things are in order, that's what you get. If things are not in order, then the you know, the driver is drunk on his bench and the horses are like out of control and the wheels aren't greased and the whole thing's a kind of crazy contraption and doesn't go anywhere. And a lot of us are kind of in that state, um, you know, if we're not paying attention, you know, it's very easy, very easy to fall into that state unconsciously. So um, the mind is meant to be part of this system under the control of our being, our real I, um, and uh, in order for that system to work, we have to do some effort, make some effort to uh, stay in touch with our, our, our greater self, our I. So given the direction of our, oh yeah, so the mind is meant to be part of a system. It's not meant to be the be-all and the end-all of existence. Although we could say that given the nature of our technology these days, the mind might just be the end-all of our existence because things are getting pretty crazy out there. Um, we'll see. You know, there's all kinds of, right, all, uh, many uh, cultures have put out prophecies that things are going to get very crazy. We'll see. You know, the best we can do is be not crazy ourselves. Um, 
So when we try to control natural chaos, the chaos that surrounds us, um, rather than living with it and working with the way things are, we often end up making more different chaos, often less natural chaos. I, I heard, you probably heard this, that plastic is now everywhere. There are microplastics pretty much everywhere on the earth. Maybe, maybe they're not down in the Antarctic, the very South Pole, but they found them in all samples of soil and air, like everywhere in remote places, because plastic breaks up these tiny particles they get around. It's everywhere. We're like, it's in us. Every person on the planet, statistically, every person on the planet has Teflon in their blood. They've taken blood samples and done research. We've all got Teflon in our blood. Yay! All right. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, efforts at control, you know, the control that we try to impose on the chaos of the world. Uh, there's this idea of megatech, which comes from a book, a book called uh, In the Absence of the Sacred by Jerry Mander. This idea of megatech is, uh, it's sort of like, like the industrial corporate complex that just wants to consume everything. It's like our economy is based on this model where if there's a resource out there, if there's a mineral to be mined and turned into something, if there's petroleum that we can you know, pump out of the ground and turn into plastic, well, we damn well better do it. Because if we don't, someone else will. And we're in competition and we've got to maximize profit and profit is the only good. And anything that gets in the way of the profit should just be plowed under. If there's tribal people living on some land that has oil underneath it, get them out of there. We need that oil because we are obligated morally obligated to go out there and, and harvest those resources because that's the greatest good. And that attitude, and there's a lot more to it than that, obviously, this whole book is kind of about that. But that idea that everything out there needs to be exploited, that everything needs to be privatized and turned into a resource that is generating profit for you know an individual or some group of investors, it's a kind of sickness that um, permeates our society and we live in it. It's like the water we swim in, so we tend not to notice it. But the corporate profit motive is really at the root of a lot of the, the ills that uh, society is suffering. It's just something for us to be aware of, I think, that um, that motive to exploit available resources or else you're some kind of sucker that underlies a lot of what's just around us all the time. So even when things don't seem to be crazy, that's, that's there. It's an underpinning. Uh, so that's the compulsory consumption of all resources. Just if it's there, you got to consume it. You know, like a dog. If you, put, if you put all your dog's food out for the day, right? I have cats. I don't have dogs. But I understand. If you put all the food out for the day, the dog, will, many dogs, will just eat it all and stuff themselves and you know, make themselves sick because they just eat all the food at once because that's all they know how to do. And we're kind of like that. <laughs> or the way a bacteria, you know, bacteria in a culture, you put make a Petri dish, Petri dish, imagine a Petri dish, and you've got your bacteria in there. They just grow and they'll grow and grow until they consume all the resources and poison themselves with their own waste in that little enclosed environment because they don't know any better. Um, I would like to think that the human race knows better, but in some ways we seem to be demonstrating that maybe we don't. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk. I don't know if it's still out there, but there was for a while a lot of talk in the business world, uh, business jargon about, <clears throat> about disruption as a virtue. Every business was supposed to be disruptive. You know, all the, like the, all the uh, Uber and, and Airbnb were disruptive to the traditional 
um, you know, transportation and housing industries. And it's great, you know, if you if your company could be disruptive, it was going to be something that attracted a lot of investors. So everyone tried to present themselves as being very disruptive to the status quo. You know, Facebook had this motto of um, move fast and break things, right? Do people remember that? And uh, that was their, like an internal motto they had. It's like, what could possibly go wrong, right? Move fast and break things. What could possibly go wrong? Well, if we look at some of the consequences of uh, Facebook's uh, activities, some of them have been disruptive not only to um, you know, existing um, business models, but also to uh, our society in some significant ways. So even when you have all, uh, ostensibly altruistic motives, if you're thinking just in terms of disruption, there can be a lot of unintended consequences. And uh, unintended consequences are one of the things I think we're dealing with in our society now in a couple of ways. Uh, Alex Brooks, who's a he's an author and an, a, a somewhat of an expert on catastrophe preparation, pointed out that we had back in the uh, in the '60s we had warehouses full of personal protective equipment and things because uh, you know equipment to be prepared for a pandemic because the government was aware that such a thing was something we should prepare for. And then in the ensuing decades, we've gotten rid of a lot of that stuff because people thought, you know, oh, we should have just-in-time, you know, supply chains and not waste money storing all these things in warehouses and don't be silly. And and then here we found ourselves uh, kind of flat-footed when things went south. So when we try to control natural chaos, you know, or just chaos that exists around us, we often make more or unintended chaos, um, especially if our need to control is fear-based. Um, if we feel a lack of control in one area of life, we tend to try to control another area of life to make up for it on some level because we're trying to feel, we want to feel powerful, we want to feel in control. But, you know, sometimes it's like the more, the more you tighten your grip, the more star systems slip through your fingers, right? So... Um, it's not always about trying to exert more control on the situation that seems to be out of control. You know, if, you, if you've ever read A Wizard of Earthsea, Ursula K. Le Guin, fantasy novels, there's a series of them. But there's a scene, a scene where this young wizard in training, um, you know, he's developing the ability to control the weather and all this stuff. But he's out walking somewhere from place to place, and he realizes that when you control the weather, if it's raining and you stop the rain here, that rain's got to go somewhere. You know, there's this, this whole system balances itself out. So by cr- stopping the rain here, you might cause a flood somewhere else. Or by creating a sunny day here, you might be causing flooding somewhere. So this apprentice wizard just, he's walking along, it starts raining, and he thinks about this, and he just, it's time to go to bed, and he just slips under a bush, and he goes to sleep under the bush in the rain. Even though he has the ability to control the weather, that idea that, you know, who are we, who am I to manipulate reality in order to make it conform to my convenience is a very powerful idea. You know, we tend not to think of that as being powerful. We might think of that, looking at it from the surface, as, um, you know, a weakness, a sign of weakness, that you're not controlling the world around you. But actually, sometimes it's a sign of wisdom and a sign of 
not wanting to um, create more chaos in the world. So our ability to affect external chaos, while it's not zero, it's limited, or maybe we should be willingly limited, limiting it in some cases. But we have, or we can develop, a lot of control over our internal chaos. Um, so that's what we have to start with, and that's what you know, the rest of the conversation's about here. I want to share a quote here from uh, one of my heroes, this fellow, John Burton. John Burton's a glassblower, was a glassblower. I don't quite have John Burton's deep British voice, but I'll just read this here. When the artist craftsman dreams of a thing of beauty and then proceeds with his own skillful hands to so manipulate his medium so that the dream, more or less successfully, becomes clothed with objective reality, love of his work is the mainspring that motivates and guides him through the self-discipline all creative work demands. He and his creation are one. This is himself at full stretch, in full action. This is his to do, his unique private enterprise, a giving of his best to the man-made world. His total, his being, his total being is alive, and he knows the joy of active engagement in the fulfillment of his singleness of purpose. This is his spontaneous way of life, for which there is no substitute. Nor does this creative mood desert him when he leaves his workshop. It comes to dominate his waking hours. Everywhere he is a man dignified by the fulfillment of his inner calling, a man whose vision and work align him with the striving of all men of goodwill for individual freedom and obedience to just laws. His work is also his greatest pleasure, and through it he recreates himself perpetually, blessed with the peace of mind that rewards the creator. With his work, he delights himself and his friends and may come to delight a small or wide unknown group of his fellows in his state or nation. Implicit in a society built on the worth of the individual, on law and justice, is this freedom of every man to live and work at his unique creative best. Men are not alike, nor is there equal vigor and talent in them. Freedom to function each in his own way within the laws that make for harmony in human society leads to what John Ruskin called the harmonious inequality of concurrent power. I know of no six words that better describe the relatedness of men who would keep their individual and national orbits clear of chaos. You know, the thing about that quote it seems sort of old-fashioned, doesn't it? I mean, the way he was talking, sort of almost corny and old-fashioned in these days. But why? Why does it seem old-fashioned and corny to us, if it does? I don't have all the answers, you know, but it's, to me, it's just an indication of a direction that our society's gone, where things are, a lot of our discussion is lately, you know, is much more about destroying people who don't agree with us rather than trying to cultivate the harmonious inequality of concurrent power, you know, of having personal freedom and uh, while living in harmony with other people based on just laws. You know, it's like, no, I just want to run things. That's very much the mood in a lot of the communication we see and hear these days. Uh, you know, the thing about Burton, that, that quote from Burton, 
is that he probably wrote the draft by hand, you know? Have you ever noticed the difference between writing something by hand versus typing it right into a computer? There's a real, I see at least one or two heads nodding. There's like a real qualitative difference. Uh, and he probably, you know, then went to a manual typewriter and typed it, you know, and had to hit the carriage return. And like. <clears throat> and when you're doing that, when you're writing things by hand, um, there's a different kind of thinking that happens. You know, it's like if thinking before you publish your comments is so old fashioned. You know, nowadays we just type out an email and hit send and like, oops, wait a minute. Maybe I shouldn't have quite said something. Or we tweet something. We just want to let rip whatever is on our mind. And we think that makes us smarter than our ancestors. And I'm not sure that it really does. You know, there are times when we're just creating more chaos by operating that way um, that doesn't really serve us or our fellow man, our fellow men of goodwill. And Burton used that phrase, the harmonious inequality of concurrent power, which was a quote of Ruskin, who was a philosopher that he was very fond of. The basic idea was that you know, we all have liberty and we all are also acting in a way that is consistent with the well-being of our natures. We're all obeying just laws, but also acting with liberty. And if we all have that attitude, we can work together and not have to step on each other's toes all the time. Nowadays, sometimes it just feels like things have gotten so um, polarized. Are you wearing a mask or not wearing a mask when you're out in public? Some people disapprove of you if you aren't wearing a mask. Some people disapprove of you if you are wearing a mask. But it's just an example of how things have gotten that makes Burton's comments there about just living harmoniously with our fellow men of goodwill. And obviously he means women too, right? Um, it almost seems odd to think that we could do that. You know, it's like a lost vision, <laughs> a lost vision of society. I have bad news for us now, in case that wasn't enough bad news. In order for us to work with chaos, especially our internal chaos, restraint is what's called for. We have to cultivate a quality of restraint. Um, and it's not being suppressed. It's not being controlled. It's, a, it's self-restraint. It's a control directed inward rather than a control directed outwards. A lot of the time, and I don't want to say 100% of the time, but you might be able to say 100% of the time, when we try to control what's outside of ourselves, we end up creating more problems somewhere. Uh, if not right here and in, in, right in front of us, there's some chaos being created out there as a result of, of my effort to control things right here. Um, so restraint is a control directed <clears throat> inward rather than outward. It's control of ourselves, which is ultimately the only thing we can control. Restraint means not to act on impulses that can be difficult in, a, in you know, our current environment, <laughs> especially when you see someone with a bumper sticker in front of you. Sometimes don't you just want to like, you see that bumper sticker, don't you want to just kind of slam into that guy's car? You know, the guy in front of you is like, oh, how could you be so stupid? You know, whatever your opinion is, someone on the other side probably looks really stupid. But see, that's, that's a result of that polarization process, the us and them, the division process that the mind does. We go by default. We always go to dividing things into us and them. So if, if you aren't me, you're probably one of them. If you're not one of us, you're one of them. Um, and the mind just goes there. So some practices, some spiritual practice like meditation being one, which I always like to promote, meditation practice can be a way 
to start to work with the mind. Now, you don't necessarily stop it from acting in this polarizing way, but it can give us perspective. And that perspective is what gives us the space to then act with some restraint when we're being pulled in a certain direction by the mind, when we're being pulled to post that, you know, that email or that tweet or to you know, slam into that guy's car in front of us. Um, you know, we can generate some calm for ourselves. And a practice of meditation is one way to do that. I'm, I'm not going to tell you how to meditate. I mean, I can give you pointers if someone has never meditated and they want to know, but there's lots of lots of meditation techniques and you can find the one that is your favorite and just do that and it'll be very beneficial. Another thing that involves restraint is um, developing a sense of purpose or an aim, as Gurdjieff said. You know, a sense of purpose um, is a focus that naturally screens out other things. You have your sense of purpose and you act in a way that supports that purpose. You don't act in ways that don't support that purpose. But how often do we not even notice when we're being pulled out of our, our aim, our direction, our sense of purpose, or what Castaneda called a uh, path with a heart? And how do you find a path with a heart? It's not difficult. The problem is that we tend not to ask the question. Most people don't bother to ask, does this path have a heart? And so that's a technique that we can learn to apply. You know, you might phrase it in different ways, but just considering, you know, before in the midst of making a decision, does this path have a heart? And sometimes it might be a higher order, you know, a higher form of information that's coming from our intuition uh, telling us, no, you know, this isn't quite the right path. Something, a little voice telling us um, not to pursue a path. It's worth listening to that voice. The problem is we don't tend to even ask the question sometimes. That's the singleness of purpose that John Burton was talking about. That quote. Having a sense of purpose requires us to organize our energies. It's a conscious process, and anyone can start to do it. You know, in Red Hawk's book, he talks about self-observation as being a primary and maybe the primary and most primal tool for beginning to develop um, a sense of purpose and organizing your energies, uh, if you can learn to self-observe. But uh, our attention is really the thing we have the most control over, you know, where our attention goes. Now, if we haven't been paying attention, if we haven't been looking within, then we might not be familiar with the idea that we can control our attention and where it goes. But with a little bit of practice, we can control it much more than we might otherwise think. Um, and again, we live in a society, and especially if you spend time on the internet, things are always pulling. You know, I made the mistake of buying some things from wish.com. <laughs> and now I'm always getting these emails with like, you know, all these things. I don't know if anyone have, has this experience, but I'm sure all the shopping sites are the same. You know, they come more American Science and Surplus. They're great, you know, but they send you these emails, all this stuff. And it's all meant to just pull you off your center. Everything pull you off your center. Coming back to our own center requires cultivating some control over our attention. Sense of purpose is a passionate investment of energy. So you can think about it that way. It's a passionate investment of energy. And where does our passion come from? You know, our passion comes from finding a path with a heart or some of those things that John Burton was talking about, 
you know, if you're if you're one of the glass people watching this talk, or if you follow any other you know path of creative expression, then you know what that's like when you're working and you get in the zone, and it becomes you know your world becomes your oasis, as Burton would say, and you're following your creative path. You're at your you know you're at your full stretch, as Burton would say. Yeah, those great expressions, you know, yourself at full stretch. But even if you're not using, um, if you don't have a creative handcraft that you use, by cultivating attention, we can be in that same state by paying attention to how we place our attention and through, you know, practices like meditation, or maybe you have a martial art that you practice. That's another great way of cultivating attention. So there are a lot of paths to be pursued. It's a matter of finding the one that suits you the best. Also, a sense of purpose is something to be cultivated over time. You you know, if you don't have one right away that you can lean on and uh, count on a sense of purpose, you can cultivate it. You can build it over time. And if you fail, if you digress, diverge from your sense of purpose, then just bring yourself back. It's the nature of distraction that's just going to come up. There's always going to be distractions. And... Um, you don't want to compound the problem of, of distraction by then getting freaked out about the fact that you're distracted. Just notice you're distracted. Come back. You know, if you're in meditation, maybe you have a meditation practice of counting your breath um, and you lose count and you suddenly realize that you stopped at three and now you're thinking about chocolate ice cream. Um, just come back, start counting at one again and see if you can get at least to four. <laughs> you know, and you just... Go back and repeat. Start again. As Red Hawk likes to say in his book, he says, sometimes you eat the bear and sometimes the bear eats you. So sometimes we win in this battle of controlling our attention and sometimes we just get distracted and pulled off center. Then just start again. And logic. Logic is something that can be used to cultivate a sense of purpose. Um, in, In the political sphere, in the internet sphere in general, you know, in the social sphere, we get dished out a lot of lack of logic, a lot of emotional arguments, things that are meant to pull us one way or another and manipulate us that are not necessarily based on fact. Things masquerading as facts, you know, just because it was on the internet, you know, sometimes it makes you think it's true. So the, the conscious use of logic is something that we can pursue. I'm going to share the... Ten Commandments of Logic. This is really great to keep in mind something like this when you're evaluating some of the information that we see on the internet. So, the Ten Commandments of Logic. One, thou shalt not attack the person's character, but the argument. So, attacking a person is called ad hominem, that Latin term. When you're having an argument, you need to base your argument on the or attack the argument rather than attacking the person. Thou shalt not represent or exaggerate, misrepresent or exaggerate a person's argument in order to make it easy to attack. Thou shalt not use small numbers to represent the all. Hasty generalization. Thou shalt not argue thy position by assuming one of its premises is true. Um, you know, like uh, on 
ancient aliens. You know, if you watch ancient aliens, a TV show, you know, they'll, they'll start an argument about whether there are ancient aliens. They'll argue that there must be ancient aliens. And if you follow, follow the argument back far enough, it's usually because there are ancient aliens. You know, it's kind of a sort of a circular argument in that respect. Uh, thou shalt not claim that because something occurred before, it must be the cause. You know, so correlation is not necessarily um, causation. Six, thou shalt not reduce the argument down to two possibilities. Now, that's a great rhetorical technique. You have, have only two possibilities. Of course, our mind likes having just two possibilities, right? And then you force people to choose between one or the other, you know. Uh, thou shalt not argue that because of our ignorance, a claim must be true. Like we can't disprove something, therefore it's probably true. Might be an example of that. Thou shalt not assume this follows that when there is no logical, um, yeah, when there is no logical connection between two things. Uh, or 10, thou shalt not argue that because a premise is popular, therefore it must be true, you know. We've all heard that one or seen that one in advertising. But distractions. You know, we have our sense of purpose. We're cultivating our sense of purpose. And distractions, logic can be used to screen out distractions from our sense of purpose. The distractions that we have are either internal or external, or they could be both in some cases. In fact, a lot of, in a lot of times, there'll be uh, an external distraction. And then we'll turn that into an internal distraction by how we react, making something much more dramatic, making a mountain out of a molehill, or just milking um, something that annoyed me. I'll just continue to milk it as I'm continuing. I saw that guy's bumper sticker. You know, it distracted me from my sense of purpose. <laughs> and I'm still driving wherever I'm going, but I'm thinking about that guy's bumper sticker all the way. And uh, that's an example of milking an external distraction, turning it into an internal distraction that probably lasts a lot longer than it needs to. You know, drama is an example of distraction, right? Drama might start as something external, something someone says that we don't like, and then we turn it into an internal drama by how we build it up in our interpretation. Technology, entertainment, obviously, are distractions or potentially distractions in many situations. There's a quote that's, um, you know, attributed to a lot of different people. If you look it up, uh, you can never get enough of what you don't really need. People heard that quote. You've probably heard it somewhere. Most of us, I think. You can never get enough of what you don't really need. And it's kind of one of the foundations of addiction, right? Whether it's a addiction to a, a substance like alcohol or, or other drugs or, or addiction to sweets, you know, sugar. You can never quite get enough. The same thing applies to addiction you might have to power or money or information. You know, sometimes we think we need more information to get clarity about something. And there are times when more information is just not useful. In fact, I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, information anxiety. I think it was Alvin Toffler wrote the book Information Anxiety way back in the 70s, I think, about this idea that, um, you know, we have so much information coming at us and it's only increasing in volume that we have a certain kind of anxiety just from not knowing how to process the information that we get. And it's worse the more choices you have. And it's worse the more equal the choices are. 
know, when if you've ever had the experience of trying to decide between between two things that are pretty similar, you can drive yourself nuts. Another uh, another take on this idea that you can't get enough of that which you don't really need is a quote from Idris Shah, uh, who's a writer. Uh, he said, "If uh, I think he's a Sufi teacher too, isn't he? Anyway, he's a writer." Um, If your desire for good is based on greed, it is not good, but greed. So that's what we call making a distinction. (laughs) You know, you might think that the uh, desiring something that is good, or even just that we think is good, especially something that I think is good for someone else, you know, my desire for that might, uh, if it's based on greed, it might have more to do with my greed than with my wish for something good. You know, here we'll just mention conspiracy theories a little bit (laughs) because conspiracy theories are a perfect example of how you can never get enough of that which you don't really need. Because a lot of conspiracy theories, they're based on information that is sketchy or not really provable or, you know, hearsay from these different sources and because the information is of a low quality, doesn't matter how much of it you get, it never really is satisfying. And all it does is feed a certain kind of mood of, of paranoia uh, that's involved in the conspiracy theory. Um, so to resist conspiracy theories or to resist really any kind of, and, um, you know, uh, abnormal <laughs> or uh, uh, deficient relationship to information, what we need is to cultivate a taste for high quality information. So I think this can help us a lot with dealing with the internet and some of the stresses that the internet creates for us. Cultivate a taste for high quality information. And that's something we can do through education usually and experience. You know, sometimes it takes time to develop that. But again, if we have a sense of purpose around trying to develop a taste for high-quality information. What is high-quality information? What are its properties? You know, that, that list, um, the, the Ten Commandments of Logic, that can, that can help us discern whether information is of low or high quality. Um, but also, it's just through time and experience. It's like wine. If you want to develop a taste for wine, you get some education about it, and then you do some tasting, and you develop a taste over time. I want to talk a little bit about rationality versus excitement. Uh, the historian, Daniel Burston, whom I've never met in person, but I read that he said this, so I'm going to trust that he actually did. He said, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. And again, I think that's a lot of what we're dealing with uh, many times on the internet, except, of course, for the talk tonight. It's on the internet, but it's very high-quality information. So information has the property of quality. You know, we sometimes don't think of it that way. Sometimes, especially when you're on the internet, just there's this barrage of information. And it's very easy to think that it's all equal. It's all coming at us. It's all written. You know, it seems it might have a source listed. And um, if the source sounds authoritative, then maybe that's good quality information. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit deeper to find out whether that information is really of good quality because information is not all created equal. If you've ever 
tried to follow low quality directions, then you know what I'm talking about. Whether those directions are assembling a piece of furniture, you know, or an electronic device, or driving somewhere and someone's giving you directions and those directions are kind of iffy. Or as an, as an artist, you know, sometimes I'll do custom work for people. And if you're a craftsman of any kind, you've probably had this experience where you get, excuse me, a request for a custom piece and the client thinks they know what they want. They think they know what they're asking for and they communicate it to you. But if their, their communication is not really clear uh, and if you don't do a lot of checking, sometimes what they communicate to you is not really what they want. And then you make this thing for them and then you show it to them and then they are upset because you didn't do what they said they wanted. When in fact, what they said they wanted wasn't really what they thought they were saying they wanted. So quality, uh, low quality information can have ramifications. Um, you know, I think uh, relationships are often like that too, where low quality information interferes with, uh, <laughs> with happiness and clarity and togetherness. Another example of low quality information is Ancient Aliens. I'm sorry to say it's a very entertaining television show. Um, but actually, there are, uh, you'll see a mixture. There'll be some good information you'll see on an episode. I mean, they will actually show you historical sites. I mean, the Nazca Plains really do have those drawings on them. There really are these pyramids that are you know, built in such and such a way. But the conclusions that are drawn are often not very well-rounded or grounded in a logical, uh, logical fact, I'm sorry to say. Low-quality information, and this is kind of the point, low-quality information is often very exciting. So, um, and, you know, if you're in an argument with someone and you're, about, you're presenting, you're, you get excited, it's very easy to think that low, this low-quality information you're about to deliver, to deliver to this person you're arguing with may seem to you to be of a high quality because you're excited, you know. Um, but that exciting quality itself is often a sign that information is not of high quality. Not always, you know, but it's uh, a little bit of a red flag. If you find yourself feeling excited about a piece of information, you might, uh, you might question it a little bit. In terms of uh, high quality information, mm-hmm. What's the value of developing presence? Well, um, some people would say that's the whole reason we're on the on this planet is to evolve as beings. So it's like many things. There's multiple levels that you can find answers to that, depending on what you're looking for. I mean, these these things that we've talked about tonight, all of these can just be applied to dealing with ordinary stress and chaos in life, and finding a center. And just making it through this crazy period, which is hopefully going to become less crazy at some point in the future. And uh, just having some sanity in one's life. And that's certainly very valuable. Um, If you're interested in personal evolution, you know, um, many people would say that this craziness that we're in, uh, and just to be specific, in case you're not sure which craziness I'm referring to, you know, we've got the COVID-19 thing going on, all of its economic ramifications, which are pretty chaotic. We have the call for social justice and 
anti-racism in this country, which is long overdue. We've got a, a political environment right now with an election coming up. It's an election year, which is usually bad enough on its own. Um, am I leaving anything else? Oh, global warming, um, you know, all the other various things that we can call up. So all of those, uh, you know, as Dolly Parton said, it's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. So um, just to get through life, in an ordinary day, these things are very useful. But if you're interested in evolution, personal evolution, these things are really actually an opportunity to practice techniques that one might use normally for grounding oneself, being present, um, working with a little bit more awareness in your life, being really being, being present for your life. You know, a lot of the goods that we look for in life really boil down to being present. You know, they're either a substitute for being present or they're an attempt to be present. Ultimately, the satisfaction that we're going to get out of life um, is going to come from being present with what is, as it is. And sometimes that sounds just too simple. Too simple. But if you if you do some of the work of exploring what that is, and again, meditation practice is really valuable for that. Um, obviously, there are other practices that are really useful, and, and things like study of spiritual literature. Um, you know, even paying attention to your diet. I mean, if you're always eating food that makes you a little bit crazy, if you're always eating a lot of sugar, or um, you know, other substances that are in our modern diet. Um, it can be counterproductive to finding a center and keeping it. And we're in just an ordinary life, we're much more effective if we're acting from a center. And as far as spiritual evolution, you know, that's that center is the starting point and it builds um, mass and energy that then can be used to serve reality. But it's service almost if it isn't the right word anymore, because we think of service, we think I'm. I have to serve someone else. I have to give up what I want and do what this other person wants. I have to do something for them. But I think when uh, one's inner being is cultivated to a certain point, and I've had the privilege of meeting at least a couple of people who are, I would put in that category, it seems to me that, and from things they've said, that that service that happens, it's actually kind of impersonal service to the universe. You're like in, you're in relationship to just what is in front of you. You know, it's one of these paradoxes where by being in relationship to just yourself and what is right in front of you, you actually become related to the whole universe all at once. Um, and this is the kind of thing that uh, you can test for yourself over time. Uh, and you may have even had some moments of that. I think oftentimes we'll have flashes of that experience. And those are meant to be beacons for us. Um, that that's something we can pursue. One practice is to just come back to the present, like right now, like not just in meditation, but yeah, in the, in yeah, moment. definitely. That's how it, how it applies. And um, a lot of the stress that we're feeling in uh, in this chaotic world, the stress that we experience comes from not being present in the moment because we're thinking about. What's coming next? We're thinking about the implications of what's happening now, or we're thinking about how we're going to respond to someone, the thing we're going to say to them. 
we're not really listening to what's being said now, or we're worried about something that happened in the past and we want to bring that into the present. So um, just being present in the moment itself is uh, very valuable in relationship to stress, chaos. Are there any other questions out in the audience or comments? Anyone got any? Someone must have a comment on something stupid that I said. I'm sure I slipped some low quality information in there somewhere. One, that's one of the things I wanted to say, I, I sort of alluded to it, was um, one of the things we need to do is cultivate or build, a, develop a taste for boredom, develop a taste for not being all excited by the information that comes our way, as if, uh, as if the, the excitement were itself quality. Excitement doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the information. Excitement has to do with how that information is presented um, and, and framed, you know, the context it sits in. I'd like to think there is a future somewhere and that we don't have to go through 100,000 years of the Kali Yuga of people, you know, destroying each other for us to get to that point where we can disagree and still be civil about it. You know, the middle ground, some kind of middle ground, um, is where civil discourse can take place. And then you can have that uh, thing Burton was talking about, about harmonious, you know, action use of concurrent energies, where we are each our own person, we are different. And we might have lawn signs for people of different political parties, you know, with our neighbor, but we still get along. We have to live with people who disagree with us. We should want to live with people who disagree with us. It's actually healthy to live with people who disagree with us, you know, within reason, right? And the thing is, you, we can't control everybody else. We can only control ourselves. So I feel like if we can create individually, we create little islands of sanity, um, then that can begin to radiate outwards a little bit. 